You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here this evening. And I pray that the Lord, well, I know the Lord's going to speak to your heart as we worship together. We're studying through the book of Colossians, and I want to read just one verse, and I'm going to be speaking this evening on the subject of suffering. Suffering, a believer's suffering for Christ, as a matter of fact. Now, the Apostle Paul, in verse 24, has already made allusion to the fact that he has been given by the Lord the responsibility of being a minister. You see that in verse 23. But he said, here is my attitude. He said, I now rejoice, or who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And then here's an interesting statement. In fact, many people misinterpret this, uh, where he says, and I fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And there's some people who have so twisted that to believe that there is something left to be done so that people can become Christians. And so they literally say, we are doing penance in this life in order to continue to pay for the sins of other people. And yet, uh, and this is where many people get the idea, in fact, for instance, in the Catholic Church, they have the idea of purgatory. And they say these people are sort of in limbo out here, waiting for the sufferings of Christ to be filled up, waiting for believers back on the face of the earth, you know, to go through whatever they need to go through so they can be set free. Well, that is a total misinterpretation of what this passage of Scripture says. But the passage does speak to suffering. And the reason it's a misinterpretation is that the whole book of Colossians, including everything the Apostle Paul has already written, is to remind us of the sufficiency of Christ, not the insufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of His crucifixion. Not the fact that it didn't accomplish enough, it accomplished everything. It paid for the sins of all of us. And so we're going to be thinking together about suffering tonight. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the reality of, of suffering. And Father, help us to see that some of that which we go through in life, we go through simply because we are not sensitive to your will. But Lord, help us to see also that there is a kind of suffering that a believer in Christ will undergo. It is a persecution, as a matter of fact, that you will experience, a believer in Christ will experience when we are sensitive and obedient to what you ask us to do. And Father, show us the reality of that. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. Be seated. Keep your Bible open. We're going to walk through this passage as we continue our study through the book of Colossians this evening. Now, I have a friend who was a missionary in Brazil, and one day he was out preaching, as a matter of fact, uh, in a place not far from where our... our uh, partnership mission team is going to be sharing the gospel this summer, this August. And as he was preaching, he held up his Bible to make a point, and as he did that, someone from the outside of the, the uh, building where he was standing, it was an open building, no walls, just a ceiling, someone threw a large rock, and they were throwing at his head, and it would have, it would have hit him in the face had he not just held up his Bible in the stone hit the Bible and fell to the ground, just shocked the preacher. And, of course, the people there in the congregation knew that this was coming, this persecution to those who were not of the particular zealous uh, 
uh, style of Catholicism that was uh, practiced in that particular area, and they knew there was going to be persecution. Now, when he was telling that story sometime later, there was a young student in seminary who was hearing him, and, and he walked up to him afterwards, and he said, you know, I just like the experience of being persecuted for Jesus' sake. You know, having somebody try to kill me. He said, that, that would be almost exhilarating. I'd like to know that I had given my life in that fashion. Uh, to which my friend responded, well, he said, uh, that's the first time I've ever had a stone, an actual physical stone thrown at me. He said, but I have been stoned many times and much more painfully by the indifference of people and the inattentiveness of people and the lack of concern of people. He said, there are all kinds of suffering and all kinds of persecution. He said, being physically attacked is one, but he said, there's an emotional attack sometimes and there is a, a spiritual attack that can come, but it all results in suffering. Now, the word that is used in this particular passage of Scripture, which is interpreted suffering, is an interesting word. In the original language of the Scripture, it refers literally to a narrow place. Now, the image that is meant to be portrayed is a place that gets increasingly narrow as like, like a vice that is being slowly turned and squeezing you, uh, caught in the jaws of a vice, pushed to the extreme, tested. And so the Apostle Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, he says, I realize that what I'm going through as a missionary for the gospel, it's, it's for God, it's, it's for you. But he said, I rejoice in it, but it's, it's very real. Paul, as a matter of fact, was writing this letter to the Christians in Colossae, people whom he had never seen. He was writing it from Roman imprisonment. And so he knew what it was to be squeezed in life. Now, some of you all are going through that. You feel like the exigencies of your life are squeezing you right now. They're pushing on you. They're, they're, uh, you're under pressure. Maybe it's financial pressure. Maybe it's physical pressure. It could be emotional pressure. Maybe it's pressure on the job. But you know what it's like to be put in a vice right now. And you're, you're just sort of hung there. You're, you're being squeezed by the events, by the circumstances of your life. Well, let's look at this verse of Scripture and, and examine what the Bible says about the suffering of a believer. Now, with your Bible open, look with me at verse 24 once again, and I realize we're just going to deal with one verse this evening, but I want you to see the tremendous truths that are contained in this one verse. First of all, notice with me the particular arena in which every true believer in Christ is to serve. The particular arena in which every believer is to serve. Now, if you'll study this passage of Scripture, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul is doing what he's doing uh, for two reasons. First of all, he's doing it on behalf of Christ. That is, he said, I pray you, for instance, he wrote to the Christians of Corinth, I pray you in Christ's stead, on, on his behalf, be reconciled to God. And so Christ, uh, the, the Apostle Paul is saying, I, I'm out here ministering for Christ, that is, on his behalf. I, I come to you as his ambassador. I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm representing him. I'm trying to be sensitive to what God has called me to do. And God, the Apostle Paul says, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, God has separated me unto the gospel. 
And so I'm his bond slave. I'm here on behalf of Christ. But he says, also, I'm doing what I'm doing on his behalf in order to build up the church or to build up his body, which he says here, is the church. Now, that could mean two things. First of all, to build it up, that is by increasing the extent of the fellowship, people coming to know Jesus. But it also means more than that. It means, it means taking those who come to know Christ and building them up in their faith. So he says, I'm evangelizing, and then I'm taking those whom, who, who are new Christians, and I'm discipling them, and I'm doing that as a representative of Christ. Now, that is to be the arena of your ministry and my ministry. It is all contained in those two statements. Everything we do as believers, first of all, should be done as a representative of Christ. I remember um, going out to track meet when I was in high school and the coach got us on the bus and he was, he was frightened. We were going to Jefferson City, Missouri, which was the, the capital, you know. And we were, I mean, we were, we were going to be in this huge track meet and he, he got a look at the rangy guys who were on that bus and he realized that we uh, probably could not be trusted out of his eyesight and he made a big deal out of the fact that uh, we need to behave when we got to Jeff City because we, uh, you know, we were representing the school. He said, you've got to understand you're representing the school. And what, he said, so, you know, be proud and do your best and talk right and don't get in any trouble because you're representing Northeast High School of Kansas City, Missouri. And I remember him giving us that big talk. I don't remember how we acted. I don't even remember caring a whole lot. Uh, you know, I mean, in fact, uh, as I looked around at the guys who were on that bus, I thought to myself, you know, this is a pretty innocent-looking group of guys, but I know them pretty well, and I'm not sure if anybody's listening to Coach Abel as he tells us that we are representing the school. Uh, we were just all glad to be out of school and going to Jeff City. That's the way we felt. But he was going on and on. You are representing the school. Don't bring, he said, no, don't bring any shame on the school. Well, let me just tell you, it's one thing to represent a school, it's one thing to represent a nation, it's one thing to represent even your family name, but as a Christian, you bear Christ's name. Um, you remember uh, there was an occasion when uh, Philip was asked if he would interview someone who had committed a crime and he said uh, you know me as great as I am with all that I've got to do they said yeah but you need to talk to this guy and he, he asked the man he said all right what you, you know what have you done he told him he said well, what's your name he said well, my name's Philip just the same as yours he said well well then you either need to change your name or change your behavior and as a believer in Christ you bear Christ's name so everything you do you're doing on Christ's behalf, and everything that Christ wants to do is in order that his body might be built up the church. Expanded people come to know him, and they're within the circle of believers that we begin to increase in our faith. We begin to grow as believers. Now, I only say that because the kind of suffering that the Apostle Paul is talking about is the kind of suffering that comes to people when they're in the right arena. And so I've taken a little time tonight to point out that there is a particular arena in which we are supposed to be doing our ministry on Christ's behalf for the purpose of building up the church. Now, secondly, notice the personal antagonism that's going to come to you 
when you're operating in the proper arena. The personal antagonism that is going to come to you. Notice here what he says. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He said, I'm suffering, and and it's because of you. He said, now I rejoice in that, but I am filling up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is his church. Now, there are problems that you're going to have and I'm going to have when we are outside the will of God. God, in fact, immediately begins to orchestrate difficulties for us when we step outside of his will. And there are some problems that you might label as persecution that's going to come to you, not because you're so holy and so pure and so right. It's just going to come to you because, you know, you're acting like a slob. You know, I've had people come to me and say, Oh, Brother Tom, you know, my, th- these people that I'm trying to work, you know, down at work, these people, they're not at all charitable to Christians. They're, you know, they're, they're persecuting me. I get talking to this person, and the truth of the matter is, the way he's acting, I don't want to persecute him too. I mean, just ugly, you know, just rude and inconsiderate and, and you know, and just, just doesn't care for anybody, doesn't love anybody. Well, you know, that's not what the Apostle Paul's talking about. And let me just tell you, a lot of what people experience and call persecution is just getting what they deserve, reaping what they sow. The same old ugly, unspiritual attitude that they have sown is what they are reaping in their life, see? Now, those are the problems you're going to have outside the will of God. But what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the persecution that's going to come to you when you are operating within the will of God. Now, how do we know that? Because of what he says here. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And what I'm doing, he says, he says, I'm filling up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. Now, what does he say? What does he mean by that? Here's what he's saying. When Christ was here, Jesus was the focus of the antagonisms of the world. They hated him. They hated what he stood for. They hated what he said. They hated him so much, as a matter of fact, that their hatred drove them to put him on a cross and crucify him. Of course, he rose on the third day, and he has ascended to be with the Father, but on this earth, He has left what he calls his body, the church. And people on this earth still haven't quit hating Christ. Hatred is still in them for Christ. And the result is they are going to hate and persecute people who are doing Christ's work on this earth. It's just that simple. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. You see, the reason I say that is because I have friends who believe that the goal of the church, you know, that the purpose of the church, in fact, I've had people come to me and tell me this about First Southern. They've said, Brother Tom, you know, if you wouldn't take such a strong stand on some of these things, why, you could have great publicity and people, uh, uh, people in various walks of, of government and various walks of the media, they would love you and they would say nice things about you. And if they would say nice things about you and print nice things about you and about your church, if they would do that, then more people would come to your church. Don't you realize that? I mean, I've actually had people come to me and tell me that I ought to be silent on certain issues because if I would be, we would get good press. And if we got good press, then we'd have more people. Now, 
I want you to think about that just for a moment. The truth of the matter is, while we are to operate with love and meekness, at the same time, Christianity and everything that Christ teaches always is at cross purposes with what the world teaches. It's just the opposite. I mean, I mean it's like sliding against the grain down a two-before. I mean, you're going to get splinters. That Christianity is always at cross purposes with what the world says. And every time the church has sought to mollycoddle government, to make government of the, in the church and church in the government, every time that has happened and the church has begun to compromise its convictions, every time that has happened, it is not meant that the church has become more loved. Not at all. Because let me tell you something, friends. Anytime Christ speaks, there are always going to be those who say, that is not what I like. That's not what I want to hear. That's not the way that I want to live. And so the church is always going to be, to some extent, a thorn in the side of the secular world. Now, it doesn't mean that we ought not to do things which are charitable and loving and wonderful. It doesn't mean that we ought not to be ministering in such a way that somebody's eyes are open. They say, you know, the truth of the matter is nobody takes care of that like those people who call themselves believers. You see, that was the enigma about that church in Jerusalem. It was a love-hate relationship. On the one hand, they could not deny the love with which those people ministered. On the other hand, they hated the message of the church. They couldn't stand the message of the church. And so the Apostle Paul is saying this, look, if you really get involved in the particular arena in which you're supposed to be ministering, that is, really representing Jesus, really building up the body, there are going to come times in your life when you will be at cross purposes with the world. And Jesus said, look, the, the servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted the prophets who are before you, do you think you're going to get off any better? Listen, folks, Christians have had it relatively easy in America. You say, are you asking for it to be hard? No, I'm not asking for it to be hard. But I'll tell you this, it's going to be harder. It's going to be more difficult. Uh, let me just share with you something that's going on in my own heart. Now, I don't want to labor this too long. <clears throat> there is a very subtle pressure that comes to pastors and to churches that most people never even think about, a pressure to conform to the ways of the world that most people don't know anything about. You know what it is? It is in the form of uh, tax exemption for a nonprofit organization. Now, now believe me, I, I, I don't believe the church ought to be taxed, Okay. But let me, tell you, let me show you the downside of that. You see, gradually, churches and religious institutions across America, in order to maintain their tax-exempt status, have to keep giving up their abilities to speak on certain issues. You can't do this or you can't be tax-exempt. And don't speak out on this or you won't be tax-exempt. Don't take this extent because that's political and you can't be tax-exempt. You see what I'm saying? And so there's a subtle pressure to muffle 
the voice of God as spoken from the pulpits of churches with the threat, well, if you do that, you'll lose your tax-exempt status. Let me, let me give you some other things, not just that. For instance, the hiring quotas. I mean, if things go down like some people, for instance, from the very head of our nation, if things go down like they want them to go down, in order to maintain a tax-exempt status, a church would have to place itself under hiring quotas. So we'd say, all right, if you're going to have this many ministers, you've got to have this many women ministers, you've got to have this many homosexual ministers, you've got to... Because homosexual be called, homosexuality will be called a minority group. You've got to have this many people. And if you don't, you're going to lose your tax-exempt status. Let me tell you something. The day may come where we, First Southern Baptist Church, I can't speak about others, we may have to say, friends, if maintaining our tax-exempt status means that we cannot speak out on critical issues, then we'll just have to lose it. We're just going to have to speak out. Now, what I'm saying is this. There is not a group of people. There's, there's, you can't say about any group of people in this nation right now what you can say about Christians and get by with it. Well, if you said what some of these talk show hosts say about the Christian faith, if you said about homosexuals, if you said about other, my, other groups that they call minority groups, you'd be run out of town on a rail, but you can sure say it about Christians. Now, you say, well, we need to change things so people aren't talking bad about us. No, let me just tell you this. When you are ministering in the particular arena God gives you to minister, on Christ's behalf, building of the body, you will experience personal antagonism. They hated Christ. They're not through hating Christ. You are the body of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I'm just filling up the suffering of Christ. All right, now what should be the proper response? We looked at the particular arena, the personal antagonism. What should be the proper response to persecution? Well, the Apostle Paul says this way. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, that doesn't mean you say, hot dog, I'm going to get persecuted. I'm going to go out and do something that's going to get me in trouble. Now, that's not the purpose of this. But it says, when it comes your way, you are to rejoice in it. Now, why is a believer in Christ able to rejoice in persecution? This was an, this was an irony. This was something that that the Roman Empire, for instance, could not figure out about these Christians, how they could rejoice, cast into the lion's den, brutally murdered, hung upside down and burned, used as torches for, for the arena or for parties, um, persecuted, hounded, sent out all over. You know, they could not figure out how these people could undergo this and still rejoice. Now, how is it that you can rejoice? All right, I want to suggest two things. First of all, you can rejoice when you're in that particular arena and you experience personal antagonism. You can rejoice because you have the, you have the, uh, the right focus in life. You have the right focus in life. How is it that people could go into the arena and die being literally mauled by lions and rejoice because they realize that there's more to life than this. That even their death was just a passageway. It was a, it was a valley. There, there's more to it than that. They had the right focus. They saw that, that this life is just so brief compared to all of eternity and they were simply laying up treasures in heaven. You know, if you, if you want to understand about these people, well, turn with me, for instance, to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. 
We sometimes, we glamorize, and we ought to, I think, the people of faith, the men and women of faith. We talk about, boy, what, what great people. Here's Abraham, and, and here's Moses, and here was Noah, and here was uh, uh, Enoch, and, you know, these great men of faith. But um, I want you to notice verse 33 of Hebrews 11. Talks about most of these people of faith through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured. Does this sound like fun? not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yes, moreover, of bonds and of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Does that sound like a blast, a real party? And yet, why do these people do this? Because they had the right focus. They had the right focus. They realized that, that, that everything does not end when life is over on this earth. That for a believer in Christ, it is the beginning of a forever in heaven with him. And the way we conduct ourselves on this earth has a lot to do with the way we spend our forever with him. The right focus. There's a second reason that we can rejoice, and that is because we receive fellowship. We receive fellowship. There's something about suffering for Christ that brings us into intimacy with Him. Now, I, I've noticed this. I, I noticed, for instance, the other night uh, when um, uh, Glenda Lambert was sharing her testimony last Sunday evening, and, and we've been praying for her and and this, uh, just, just day by day looking to God with her. And yet there's some people who could really understand more than others what she's going through physically because they have a similar experience. And as much as we have fellowship, they have it even more so because they have a a similar experience of suffering, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, I don't know about you, but I really want to grow intimate with Christ. I was sharing with our staff this morning, my, my, my life verse is where the Apostle Paul says, I know whom I believe and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know whom I've believed. So he says, here's, here's the steps of relationships. Believing in Jesus, then knowing him intimately. Out of intimate knowledge comes the persuasion that he's able, and that results in a total commitment of your life. In the Bible, many times, when they're speaking of physical union, the actual union of intercourse between a man and a woman, it will make this. Abraham took unto him his wife Sarah, and he knew her. The word know is used to describe the most intimate kind of relationship. Now, the Apostle Paul said 
here is my magnificent obsession, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, if you want to be intimate with someone, you have to in some way experience what that person experienced. If you're going to be intimate with Christ, there is going to be some suffering involved. Now, let me just put it that way. If you're going to be intimate with Christ, there is going to be some suffering involved. It may not be the death on the cross, but it may be other kinds of nails and other kinds of blows. Maybe they're verbal rather than physical. Maybe other kinds of exigencies in life that you're going to go through, all of which has the ultimate result of drawing you into intimacy with Christ. And there is a sense in which, I'll tell you, there's a sense in which people who go through suffering have a grasp of the reality of life that people who haven't experienced suffering don't have. They see the brevity of it. They see the temporal nature of it. They see the importance of enjoying today just because it's today and there may not be a tomorrow. There's an intimacy in their walk with God, a wisdom and a judgment that comes to them that does not come to those who say, my goal in life is to avoid any kind of suffering, whatever I have to do to get out of it. So when you are in the right arena, you're going to receive real antagonism. And there's a proper response. I'm going to put my focus upon the Lord, and I'm going to realize this suffering is drawing me into fellowship with him which is my ultimate goal as a believer in Christ, to be with him. Do you understand what the Apostle Paul is saying? I pray that you do, because it'll come your way. One day, it will come your way, knocking at the door, if it hasn't already. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray right now that as we bow before you, you'll make our hearts sensitive to your will. You will open our eyes to the truths of this passage. If they hated the prophets which were before us, they're going to hate us. If they hated you, they will hate us. Lord, the only reason that many of us have not experienced greater suffering is because we have not been focused as we should on the particular arena of ministry, on your behalf, building up the church. For if we had, we would have suffered even more. Father, for some here this evening, the... The goal of life has been to escape pain. However, whatever we could do to get out of pain and suffering, away from any of the exigencies of life, but Lord, I pray you'd show us there is a proper response. We can, as the Apostle Paul said, in a Roman prison, we can rejoice in sufferings for the church. Now, Lord, I pray that this invitation time, you'd bring to this altar those who will say yes to you, opening their heart to you, and to your will. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. In a few moments, we're going to stand. Our praise singers are going to be here. We're going to sing this simple little chorus together. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's stand together with heads bowed and with eyes closed. There are going to be counselors here at this altar. If you've made a decision in recent weeks and we've not introduced you to our church, maybe you joined the church Sunday or in some previous week and we've never ask you to stand here and introduce you to your church family. I'm going to ask you in a few moments to come 
and just be seated over here to my left and your right where it says seating for new members. And I believe there are people in this congregation, there always are, to whom the Lord is speaking about becoming a part of this church family. Well, there's no time like the present. James says, if a man knows what is right, does it not, to him it is sin. What he's saying is, look, you don't have to go out and do something wrong to be a sinner. It's a matter of knowing what's right and just not doing that. Well, do you know what's right to do? I would encourage you, if the Lord's speaking to your heart tonight and saying, look, this is where you need to plant your life, plug in, reach people, I would encourage you to join tonight. I really would. Come as an individual, single person. Find your home here at First Southern as a family, as a couple. Just come and say, look, I'm planning. We're planning our lives here in this church. These counselors are here to help you when you come. And I believe that there are those here to, this evening to whom the Lord is saying, look, tonight is your night to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Maybe it's your first night to ever come to church here. Maybe it never occurred to you, but when you walk in the doors that tonight would be your moment of destiny, the, the most important decision you'd ever make in your life, to receive Christ as your Savior, the one who died on your cross, receive his death as payment for your sins, recognizing you're a sinner and desiring to be set free from those, you'll say yes to Jesus. If that's your heart's desire, I'd encourage you to come say to one of these counselors, look, I want to trust Jesus tonight. What do you get? You get cleansing of sin, you get abundant life, you get eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Go to heaven when you die. Purpose in life. He's the God of all comforts who will comfort you in all of your suffering, all of your afflictions, so that you can comfort others also. I mean, that, that's just an amazing thing. And people are coming even now, and I would urge you to join them. You say, look, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. Just come tell that to one of these counselors. Father in heaven, I pray now just thanking you for the privilege of meeting together. Bring us to say yes to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin singing. This altar is open. You may need to simply do as some are doing. Come and pray and say, Lord, you know what I'm going through? You know the need of my life? Come here and kneel at this altar and pray. Let's sing together. Come find one of these counselors. Say yes to the Lord right now as we sing.